Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I want two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. From Diddy TV, this is Insights, where today, Amy Wright gets to chat with Bill Payne, the Waco, Texas native who, along with Lowell George, co-founded the legendary and incomparable rock band Little Feet. When it comes to piano and organ work and the mix of genres that are rock, blues, funk, and jazz, no one does it quite like Bill Payne. Outside of Little Feet, Payne has also recorded and worked with J.J. Kale, Jimmy Buffett, the Doobie Brothers, Emmy Lou Harris, Pink Floyd, Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, and countless others. A shockingly impressive list of artists for sure. He's a true creative with a distinct voice and perspective, with great skills reaching into photography, writing, and other realms. We're grateful to have him on the show today, and happy to share the conversation with you right now. So let's get to it. Here's Amy Wright and Bill Payne on Insights. How long have you lived in Montana? I've been up here since, uh, I mean, I've had a, I built a place here in 1980. And uh, <clears throat> I probably lived here for 10 or 11 years, I guess. I'm not sure, maybe 12. But, uh, Are you a skier at all? or I used to cross-country ski, but uh, I, a little more... I play golf now. When I was when I turned seventy three, uh, actually in my late sixties, mid sixties, I started kind of doing less. So I'm seventy three now. Um, my wife is twenty six years younger than I am, so she's she's good at all, all and any and all that stuff. But the last time I was out, I was cross country skiing. Was I was like, God, I just if you're just on the flats, that's cool. But if you're going down hills, which we we've done before. I just, I don't want to mess with my hands. I can't. Uh, you know, yeah, the music is more important than the skiing at that point. Yeah, you get a little cautious sometimes, and you, you can't afford to be too cautious, uh, but you can't afford to, to be weird either. So it's a, I said, you know, we'll get out if we need to. We had snow about three days ago. Uh, it's just raining today. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, we're we're the opposite of snow down here where we are right now. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's almost ninety degrees. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I get it. I was in Florida not too long ago, so yeah, I I love I love uh, uh, Montana. I mean, I haven't spent really any time there, but um, we have friends that um, that live there and um, work at a ski resort there. So oh, cool. you know, they're they're sending us photographs all the time, and we have. Uh, you know, summer jealousy when it gets really hot. We're typically in Memphis. That's where our, our studio is for the oh, television okay, good. network. Good. So, um, but we, we tape other places as well. So we happen to be down here, but typically we're in Memphis and it's hot as hell in the summer. So <laughs> you sort of, sort of deal with that. Where did, where did you actually grow up? I grew up in, uh, I was born in Texas, uh, Waco or Waco as I've called it for years, but, uh, from two years of age on, uh, I was in Ventura, California, which is on the coast. I was a surfer yeah. and uh, skateboards and all that cool stuff. And then when I was 15, which would have been the half semester of, of my first year in uh, high school, 10th grade. I think nowadays kids go into high school in ninth grade, but uh, back then... Uh, Tenth grade, I was up in Santa Maria, which is in Central California, and uh, that's where I joined my first band when I was fifteen. So, you, when did you learn to play piano? I learned to play piano when I was about five, so I've been playing piano for about sixty-eight years, which is a long time. So, so was that imposed upon you by your parents, or did you say, "I want to play piano" when you were a kid? Maybe there's a little girl across the street named Marilyn Newell, and she t- was taking piano lessons. I said, well, if Marilyn can take piano lessons, I should be able to take piano lessons too. 
So my sister had already t- tried the piano, didn't didn't fit with her. But my brother tried, he was a little younger, but so years later he tried as well, didn't fit with him. But it fit with me great. I had a teacher named Ruth Newman, uh, who was like a second mother to me. And she told my mom, she says, uh, um, I'll make sure Bill knows how to read music. Let's not take the magic out of it for him. Let him play by ear. Beautiful. So I had a dual track there. Uh, I'm sitting next to my piano here. Um, oh, wow. Look at that. This is a, a, an instrument, seven-foot Yamaha, that I played on the first couple of uh, Amy Lou Harris records and later with Travis Tritt. And uh, somehow I got a hold of that through Brian Ahern, who oh, wow. was married to Tammy. And, and he, uh, uh, sometimes when Brian gets in touch, he'll say, how's our piano doing? And I always say, uh, <laughs> possession's nine-tenths of the law. It's my piano. So <laughs> it's doing fine. <laughs> so when did you actually take up the B3? Was that later? Yeah, it was later. I, I was actually, when I was... 10, I think 10 years old, I started taking pipe organ lessons at the Presbyterian Church, which was across the street in Ventura, where Ruth lived. And uh, I remember it having four to five manuals. Um, And it gave me that positioning of where, like what I play with Little Feet now, where I've got the main keyboard here, let's say, and then up here is another keyboard that I can reach over to. <clears throat> with the Doobie Brothers, I had another keyboard on my right side, so I could be bouncing back and forth between three keyboards. I learned that acumen through pipe organ. And uh, so that's kind of the way it works with me, is if I'm playing a, a Mozart piece, let's say, uh, practicing Mozart, I can be playing that, and then I'll go off onto another tangent, play something else, then come back to Mozart. And... It's all about facility. Uh, how, do, how do you, the finger memory and, and everything it takes to play classical music, how does that intersect with what you're doing as an improvisationalist? And, uh, I learned so that. you grew up you grew up playing classical music then, and then um, when you firm, formed your first band, was that a transition when you had to move from classical to more of a contemporary no, kind of? No, because at age five, I I went into my. Uh, teacher and I played the Davy Crockett song, right? Which she then transcribed for me, said, this is what you played. And, um, and that's when she told my mom, look, I'll make sure he can read, but let's, let's not take the magic out of it. Let, let him discover what's there. To me, it's the, the piano is a, a means to, um, it's like having, it's another extension of my voice, right? So I can, I can play. I've written 20 songs with Robert Hunter because of that ability to uh, take lyrics and, and uh, bring them into to ideas. Um, and this thing has been there since I started playing. Not that I could do that. I didn't write a song until much later. In fact, when I auditioned for my first band, I was playing drums, sort of. <laughs> and they had a piano over there against the wall. <clears throat> I started playing, go, you play the piano? I go, well, I guess. And I've been playing for over 10 years at that point. Um, so um, I wasn't exceedingly focused back then <laughs> as to what I wanted to do and why. But the, the, the notion of, of being in a band, uh, which was a lifesaver for me as a kid, because uh, I said, because I, I moved from Ventura to, to San Marino, I went from that beach environment that you're, have as your background to the more of the central California environment, which is your landlocked. And it took me a little bit to adjust, even though I was going down to surf during the weekends uh, or whenever I could. But uh, one had a chance to not only did the camaraderie of being in a group, but there was the, the element, which is, you know, it's cliche at this point, but another cliche that's true are girls. You're going to be a lot of girls uh, playing music. And I did, and it was fun. And uh, I thought, this is a nice way to lead a life of uh, <laughs> what I want to do, which is play music. 
and have people that think you're okay. So it's it's fun. Do you remember the name of your first band? Yeah, it's called the Debonairs. And the Debonairs, when I played the piano, they go, we're dissolving this group here right now. We're going to go down to this garage where this fellow has all the gear and equipment. It's called the Debonairs. You're going to play keyboards. We're off. So uh, years later, I was in a group called Something Wild. And there's a photo of Something Wild with Peter Asher, because he was in town playing with Peter and Gordon. And (laughs) Peter and I laughed about that because years later, I mean, when he's producing Linda Ronstadt and uh, James Taylor and on and on, uh, I finally got into that click when I started working with Linda myself and then later with James. And then later, much later than that, Peter uh, managed Little Feet. Um, Peter Asher, for those that are unfamiliar with him, uh, he, the, the lyrics to I Want to Hold Your Hand were written at his house down in the basement. And Paul McCartney uh, was dating uh, Peter's sister, Jane. So Jane Asher. So um, yeah, there's a lot of it's like a Dick, Dickinson tale, honestly. The way all this stuff sort of works out, and people meet, they don't see each other for years, and they reconnect, and then there's a, a slow broil, and then things move into something else. It's it's been a hell of a ride, and it's still a hell of a ride in Little Feet these days, with two new members, Scott Gerard, Tony Leone, on. Uh, guitar and drums, vocals with both these guys. Um, a lot of people that have heard us, Amy, they it's either we haven't sounded this great in like 20, 25 years, or we haven't sounded this great since the late 70s, or we've never sounded any better than we sound now. The point is we sound really good. And we're, we're adding to our legacy uh, by playing Waiting for Columbus, and that we, we go out there and we don't replicate. We replicate the order up to a degree. I think we switched that up even a few weeks ago. But the Little Feet has always been an uh, improvisational band. So we, we still maintain that within the arrangements that we play. Um, but these are some fine, fine musicians that can... can Fred Tackett has been with us for a long time, too. He says, you know... We can play anything. I go, that's exactly right. Anything we want to play. I mean, there's stuff we couldn't do, obviously. But, uh, but most of what we want to play, which is, it would take 10 bands to, to, you'd have to be in 10 bands to play the breadth of material that we play anyway. Um, it's, it's just been such an, an exciting uh, ride. Because we, this was born during COVID, right? We didn't really know what we'd be like when we got in a room with each other until last November of 2021. And uh, it's one thing to play music long distance wise. It's another one to get in a room and play. Does everyone get along together, for example, right? Right. Bands are personalities, right? It was like old home week. I mean, we got together fine. Um, On the last gig we played, which is a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, maybe, we were still messing around with the arrangement for Fat Man in the Bathtub when it came to my solo. Kenny Grady was playing um, tequila, which I'd throw in every now and then, but it was just me and the drums were playing, Tony and I. But, I, but the whole band started playing, and we're at soundcheck. I said, stop. This is what we need to do tonight. Let's have the whole band play this right at the get-go when I start my solo. It just took it to this party atmosphere. I mean, those people down the beach would be dancing and having a ball. And that's exactly what happened that night. Uh, and it was good before. It was better, though. And so the, the synergy and energy that we have, you can hear it in my voice, too. You know, we're, we're talking about how these things come together. This is not an exercise in, like, gee, can we play Waiting for Columbus? Well, hell yeah, we can. Can we... Can we bring it to life to where people that are expectant of something, do we deliver? And yeah, we do. 
these people are like, oh my gosh, it does sound as good. <laughs> so it has to be gratifying, you know, to feel like, hey, I've been doing this for so many years and I feel like I'm at my best right now. I mean, that's got to be gratifying. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the metric that you use to determine how good you are is, look, I hear stuff I played when I was in my 20s that I just go, God, how did I do that? <laughs> it's good. I mean, uh, but I, I I knew for a very long time, at least I, I felt that um, I wasn't going to denigrate any of my work before, but I felt like I was on a trajectory <clears throat> somehow, some way to deliver my best stuff later. Um, so writing 20 songs with Robert Hunter, um, you know, that's pretty good. He did not suffer fools gladly. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the compliments we gave, I said, you know, Robert, the, the music's in the lyrics. Let's, let's be honest. I, I'm drawing out what's already there. He says, yes, but it takes a composer to draw them out. I mean, we never met. We never spoke to, uh, with each other on the phone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Everything was done uh, long distance. We, we emailed it one another, and then we came up with 20 songs. I think it says a lot about both of us. We were, we were, we were uh, able to, uh, I, think, I think the partition between us maybe, maybe allowed us to write that 20 songs. We didn't have a lot of room for the extracurricular, hey, nice to know you. And at one point I said, you know, it's saying like an internet bride Guatemalan situation. <laughs> I'm sure you're a nice man. <laughs> but, <laughs> we were going to meet at some point, but we never did. <clears throat> and uh, but I've, I've retained all the 200 plus emails that we went back and forth with. Well, let's go back a little ways. How did you originally meet Lowell George and the very beginning of Little Feet? Tell me a little bit about what happened there and how y'all came together. Oh, uh, that was in 1969. I was uh, uh, sleeping on a beach in the people's apartments up in Isla Vista, which is in Santa Barbara. And uh, I, um, I dropped out of uh, junior college the second year, so half of the second year. Uh, dropped out of junior college. And um, I, there was an album out by uh, Frank Zappa called Uncle Meat, M-E-A-T, and I wanted to join Frank's band. So with a phony calling card, there was two labels that Frank had, Straight and Bizarre. I called Bizarre. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, Frank's going to be in Europe for a month. Uh, there's a guy named Jeffrey Simmons. So I checked out Jeffrey Simmons from a group called Eureka. I went down to the Tropicana Hotel in uh, uh, Motel, I guess, in, on Santa Monica Boulevard. We met very briefly. He goes, you know what? You play really good keyboards, but I kind of play them too, and maybe this wouldn't work, but there's a guy named Lowell George you should seek out. And um, so I, you know, went back up north, just Isla Vista. I called Warners a few more times. Keep in mind that <clears throat> nobody knew who I was. I barely knew who I was. And I'm going, well, I kind of play, I mean, I play, I, I play keyboards and uh, uh I convinced one of these secretaries at Warner's to to hook me up with Lowell, to hook me up with whomever. I mean, it was just uh, so. When I met Lowell, he was living on Rowena, um, which was not far from Silver Lake, but it wasn't Silver Lake; it was the next uh, little city over, and a very rustic house. I walked up to the door. The door was open. It was hot. It was summertime. There was a beautiful blonde uh, with short hair. Uh, cross-legged, listening to some Eric Satie. And uh, she says, oh, you must be Bill. Lowell's expecting you. He'll be back in four hours. <laughs> I said, what does he do when he's not expecting you? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so long story, a little longer. I, I went through his album collections. I was looking at his books and stuff. And by the time he arrived, about four hours later, I kind of felt like I knew who he was. And we started talking. It was not unlike uh, uh, what I'd read about 
Fidel Castro and Che Guevara getting together the first time, where they spoke about everything under the sun. And uh, so I didn't immediately join Little Feet. That took place about a month later when I, indeed, I did meet Frank. But by that time, I decided I really want to be in this band with Lowell. And when I met Richie, you know, who was with the Fraternity of Man, that's how it all came together. Summer of 69, what I called uh, the Summer of Love, Murder, and uh, Men Walking on the Moon. <laughs> so who came up with the name? Was that Lowell or? I think it was Lowell. Uh, he had Lyle Gleep was one of the things he wanted to call it. There was a group called Bigfoot, and we were going to change our name from Little Feet to something else. I said, you know, no offense to Bigfoot, but I don't think they're going to last very long. And they didn't. So, so how Even. long before you actually got picked up by a label? About a year later. That's pretty quick for a band. Yeah, you know, we, we auditioned. Probably 12 to 14 bass players, in which Paul Brer was one of them. And uh, uh, we, we, we got Paul for Dixie Chicken two albums later. When we, you guys had uh, Willen, one of your big hits was on the first album, but it was also on the second album, right? You re-recorded it, or did you re-release it as a single? I don't think it was ever released as a single. We never had, we never had any singles that say duplicated what the Doobie Brothers were doing. They, they were actually a hit band, we were not. Uh, if you listen to the first, or anybody out there listens to the first Willen off of uh, uh, the, that first self-titled record, um, it, to my mind, it, it sounds like a caricature, caricature of, a, of a truck stop, uh, of, a, of a truck driver, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have any keyboards on it, which doesn't mean anything. But it was just, uh, that's a good song. The song was there. But then listen to to the rendition that's on um, um, Salem Shoes. That's where that song really came to life. It had more of a country feel to it. I came down to L.A. I'm fully aware who Conway Twitty was and George Jones and a bunch of others. And um, not that Lowell didn't know, but it was a it was a way that I, I was able to, to bring some influence into the band um, from a country side of things. But uh, we, we had a lot of different music we were playing, so that we, we all contributed to different styles, and that's the way bands operate, generally speaking. Did you feel like everyone was on the same page stylistically, or were, were people going down different paths and, and maybe it all came together? But where were your heads in terms of style? I think we were, style? we were scattered as what we are today uh, <laughs> in society, right? Everybody mm-hmm. had a different idea what the truth was or what anything meant and uh, um, which water. Nobody even was worried about bottled water back then except me. Um, <laughs> for touring, go, why don't you, what do you want to have bottled water for? I go, because the water is different everywhere you go and it affects your system differently. So I've been drinking it since I was a little kid, uh, Culligan water in Ventura. So at any rate, um, yeah, we, we, we did have different, we did uh, branch out into different areas of thought, obviously, but we also had this umbrella of things where, yeah, we did great Charles. We like James Brown. We like, uh, um, you know, Beatles, Stones, or Dewey, or Leon Russell. Wow, that's cool. Uh, Dylan. We, we had things that we could choose from. It was a golden age of music. Uh, there weren't these real tight set lists. People were playing things on the radio that were loose and formative and adventurous. So in the, in the sort of these early years, were you putting out an album and touring, or were you pretty much putting out an album and going right back at it and putting out the next album? No, we were uh, album tour, album tour, that kind of thing. And uh, it's, it's gotten to the point now where people wonder if albums are even necessary. And I, I contend that they are. Uh, not albums per se, but, but just songs. What, what, are you, what, what are you trying to say to your audience? Are, you, are, you, are we stuck with playing Dixie Chicken? That's fine. People go, well, how do you keep Dixie Chicken so fresh? I said, well, how do we keep singing Happy Birthday so fresh? You know what I mean? It's in your heart. 
hopefully when you're singing it to the person at the dinner table or wherever you are, you, you actually mean it. And that's kind of what it is with, with, with any and all of this. It's, uh, uh, I figure at whatever age I'm, I'm at, I'm very fortunate to have been able to and still be able to play music. Uh, it's something I absolutely adore, and there you go. Yeah, I would think it would be just, uh, I would think it'd be amazing to have people constantly requesting some song that, you know, I had written whenever that was. Um, doesn't mean that you're not writing new music, but um, oh, yeah. the fact that, that you have songs that are so memorable that people request them every time you play, uh, that has to be, has to be great. Yeah, and I, I, I don't get hung up on, the, on any of it. I mean, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the songs that you, you play and write, um, they, over a period of years, will, will implant themselves into people's heads just the way the old, older ones do. Now they're old as well. This is like moving through life, right? And what songs provide, well, I think music is as, as important now um, as ever, perhaps, is because of this split that we have as a, a bunch of humans. Music is an, an area where we don't have to, to show our, our, our card, so to speak, as we go in to listen to something. We don't have to debate politics. We don't have to, to debate, debate anything. We sit there and we go, man, Spanish moon sounds terrific. It moves my soul. Uh, Will and, and our, our time as a hero, we might be showing something on the screen in back of us. And we, don't, we can't do it every night, but um, some of the festivals, I don't know, we'll be able to. But it just brings people to tears. And they're like, oh my God, this is so emotional. And that's that's the point of music. It's it's to bring people together, to to bring in a flood of emotions. It's what it's what we we name the arts for the humanities. It exposes our humanity, and sometimes not in a good way. Music is not benign in any stretch or form, but it can be. And I prefer to use it for for good rather than some purposes to divide people. Well, you guys uh, put out a number of albums in the 70s, and it kind of culminated with a live album. And in some circles, they considered it one of the best live albums ever recorded. Part of it was recorded in London, and part of it was recorded in D.C., right? That's right, yeah. And um, wh whose idea was it for a live album at that time? You know, I've heard a couple of different things. Uh, somebody said it was Lowell. Um, uh, I've heard Warner Brothers threw out the, the idea, which... Either one of them makes sense to me, but particularly Warner Brothers because they they knew that we we needed something to to really help them help us, <laughs> um, and we were noted for being a great live band. So if you connect the dots, it would waiting for Columbus was a matter of of playing some of our our best music or what we thought was our best music under one roof, and then. Uh, putting that out as a statement. So they're, they're, uh, it made a lot of sense that Warner's, maybe in conjunction with Lowell or, or, or vice versa, uh, had something to do with that. When Lowell unfortunately um, passed away soon thereafter, I guess, or somewhere in, in, in this time period, when, when exactly did, did he pass away? Uh, I believe it was, in, uh, it was June 29th of 1977. And he was back in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. I don't know where he was playing, but Fred Tackett was on that tour. And then that night, he, when he went to bed, he never woke up. So it was a very sad time. Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously, the, the, like you said, the band has had um, a lot of different, um, you know, groups, iterations, and you feel like it's, you're at the best where you are right now. But um, there, you took a break in the 80s and then you reformed. And what was sort of the, the idea of getting back together and let's do this? Oh, for Let It Roll, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> first I'm going to say that other people are saying we, we are the best of what we were. The way I view it personally is that when we were with Lowell, that was amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it was amazing when we had Craig Fuller and later Sean Murphy. We have these pockets where there's, there's, as you say, the iterations are all really astounding. The iteration where we, where we are presently is, is musically better than it's been in a very, very long time. Uh, what happened was for Let It Roll, we had about a 10-year hiatus. Uh, about eight years or so into that, I was working with Bob Seeger and getting ready to tour with him. And but we had a jam session in a place called The Alley, which was in North Hollywood. And it was a room to commemorate Lowell, but it was also a room to commemorate Little Feet. Uh, this is our little hangout. And Bonnie Ray used to, to, to uh, uh, rehearse there, so did Jackson Brown. So it was this clubhouse for us. And so we went in there and we tried it, not at that place. This was a secondary offer to go in there. But the first time, which is probably six months before that, uh, or maybe even a year, we went and we tried to play, but we had too many guests there. And it just fell apart. So this time we said, if we ever do this again, it's just going to be us. And that's what it was. Well, we're in there. We're trying to play, I don't know, all that you dream. What's the second chorus? Uh, I mean, that ver verse. Nobody could remember. I'd be like singing, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, now, what, now where does it go? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was like... <laughs> uh, and w when Paul and I were driving back to his place uh, on the valley, I said, you know, this was, this was a lot of fun doing this tonight. And I think what it pointed out to me and to both of us was how extraordinarily deep our music was and that we ought to reinvestigate it. I know it's a big turtle to say, let's do it without Lowell, but I think we ought to give it a shot. Well, I got to do this nine month tour of Seeger first. So uh, that's kind of what we did. But in the interim, we were, there was some writing going on. I, and we, we wrote most of that stuff at my house in LA. And uh, we brought in Craig Fuller and there we go. Do you think releasing Let It Roll sort of um, precipitated a renewed interest in, in your previous catalog? No question about it. Yeah, it did. I actually remember that. I remember when it was released and I got a copy and uh, I, I saw you guys live soon thereafter. And so it's, it's stuck in my head. You know, it was, you put on a great show. It's, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. Yeah, wow. I think that that's exactly where we are today. Is, and I, I, say, I said the same thing to Scott Gerard an hour ago. I said, let's keep. We just have to keep in mind that when we do these things, we are in competition with ourselves. I'm not in competition with you, Scott, or with Tony Leone or Kenny Gradney or anybody else. We are in competition with our our music and our albums. So from the first Little Feet record up until the last one, that's what we're in competition with. So whatever we're going to, to go on and record at some point, uh, that's the high metric is right there. The bar is right there. So, and we're, and we're doing that and more with, with taking on Waiting for Columbus, which is, as you said, some people think it's one of the best live albums ever made. It's kind of ballsy to go out there and, and try and say, yeah, well, this is, this may be the first time you've heard us, and this is what we're doing. A lot of people have done that record. Fish, um, God, Don was in a group that played it at the Sanger Auditorium. Jamie Johnson, I think, was in there. That uh, band, a really great country singer. Um, it's just uh, what we're doing it now. And it's not an easy album to play. It's Everybody that's ever tried it, from fish on up and down, and all of whom have done great job, by the way. But they all say the same thing. It's not as, and I go, difficult as, uh, it's more difficult than you thought? And they go, yeah. I go, absolutely. I mean, oh, Atlanta should sound like it's falling off a log, like it's just a walk through the park. And it is, until you try and play it. There's a lot there. Well, and you guys, you were around pre-internet and then post-internet, and you had to go through that whole change of how you market yourself and you were pretty innovative in the way that you took on the internet 
Tell me a little bit about that. I'm pretty good at adapting. <laughs> That's what I'll, I'll say. And I do it selfishly because I want to continue to do what I love to do. I had people 15 years ago going, when are you going to retire? Oh, I don't know, 12 o'clock, one in the morning. Why? Oh. <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, it's just, come on. Well, and, and, you know, obviously it has to do with creativity and you really enjoy still writing music, right? And you enjoy performing? Yeah. Well, you heard me play earlier. Mm -hmm. so it's a, you can't do that unless you, you know, my advice to, to, to kids and, and kids are not, I mean, two years younger than me. I always advise people with whatever you want to do. But if you're a musician, learn your instrument, you know, investigate that instrument. Have it be a part of your body and soul and and see where it can take you and where you can take it. There's your ticket to creativity and, and being inquisitive in life. It's not only playing an instrument, it's like what food do you want to prepare? What are you reading? What are you what are you aware of? That's what makes life interesting. And you're always gonna get, you know, the pitchfork in the ass to either wake you up or, or to to uh, to hurt you. That's, that's part of life. But the other things that you can discover in this process of being creative, um, we, I think the rewards are that we talk ourselves out of far more things than we talk ourselves into. So if you don't, if you can't speak Spanish, well, I can speak a little bit. I wish I could speak more. But as un buen lío, no sé más matido. It's a fine mess we got ourselves into. <laughs> I got a few phrases I can toss off. Me podría dar más agua, por favor. Bring me some water, but not tráigame. Me podría dar, which is a very polite way of saying it. So you're not only learning the phonetics and whatever to, to discover things, but you discover a culture. That culture is, those are the, this is the stuff that, People fight wars over, like they're doing in Ukraine and Russia. There's, there's all the economic reasons. But the heart of everything, there's somebody has um, uh, aspirations in life. So when we, when we, when we uh, the, the aspirations are for family, for, for getting along if we can, uh, those aspirations can also be for, for cordoning people off not allowing them to vote, uh, fear. Which side do you want to be on? You know, it's a Stephen King novel on that level. So I think it makes life very, very interesting. And uh, it can keep help keep one focused on what's important. So from that perspective, what do you think uh, the role of a musician is in some of the messaging for some of the important things going on in society at whatever period that is? I think it varies. Uh, I, I think now, rather than some, I mean, there might be some people listening to this going, why don't you just shut up, you're a damn musician. And okay, fine. I'm also a citizen, right? So I have two black guys in our band, Sam Clayton and Kenny Grabney. You don't want them to vote? Why don't you tell them? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that I'm not going to get up on stage and in between songs, uh, start spouting off stuff. I want the music to to hit people, to, to draw an emotion out of them that's positive. Uh, and it can be positive from tears to laughter, right? And then afterwards, if we get to meet some people and somebody comes up, hey, what's with this? You know, I'll talk with them or I'll go, hey, pick up a book sometime and, and read it. I mean, there's somebody when we did uh, When All Boats Rise. It's a new song, right? And some guy goes, I don't have a boat. I go, all right, cool. I said, you know, I don't often write back to people, but in this case, I did to this person. I said, look, whether you have a boat is irrelevant. It is an aspirational song, which means that, um, you know, like liberty, justice, and freedom for all. That's aspirational. It doesn't mean we have it. We would like to have it. Same thing with when all boats rise. It'd be better if we all had the, the same opportunities. We don't have the same um, uh, acumen to, to deal with things. That's where, you know, you're not giving things away. You're giving people opportunities. That's a lot different. 
So I said, maybe start thinking aspirational. I never heard back from him, but I thought, you know, it wasn't a confront a confrontation with the person. You know, we don't need that. We need people to start thinking what's what's the bottom line with what they want. You know? When we have a conversation about the topics, so you know, um, as opposed to telling people what they need to, to hear or um, telling them your opinion, just that dialogue of going back and forth and, and, and hearing what other people have to say and sharing those ideas goes a long way to elevating some of these, um, you know, some of these really um, tough uh, areas that we're dealing with right now in, in society, right. for sure. Yeah, we've been dealing with them for a long, long time. I mean, slavery was on the mind of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Um, Washington said, I, we're not going to figure this out. We're going to kick that can down to somebody else. And they did. But he knew it wasn't right, but he still had slaves. So uh, <clears throat> this is uh, the way history works. Is uh, Some things are never going to be sorted out, but a lot can be. And um, I think... Um, Valuing people's voice is, is a good place to start. You know, why do they think a certain way? What, uh, is this something we're teaching our children, our grandchildren? Um, if you were to project anything, uh, where does it lead us in a hundred years? That kind of thing. I don't have all the answers. I don't pretend to, but I can, <clears throat> I can tell you this. I've been in, in, a, in a group with two black cats for now, 50 years plus, and we have different ways of, of coming to, to uh, decisions on what we do. And they, it's, not, it's not their color, it's just that we're, we're individuals, what you were talking about earlier. How do people um, come to, to that decision-making process? It, it's, it's, ra it's, it's brought up on a lot of things, the way we were raised, what we're open to accepting, what we what we reject out of hand, all the normal stuff. But if you're looking at the microcosm of being in a band, and there's your universe, <clears throat> you, that's that's a, a good way to look at things. It's just through this compartment of, of people that you really know, and that uh, we might not agree that the Celtics over the. <laughs> The Milwaukee Bucks, is the, you know, which team do you like and why? That kind of thing. But it's always the same stuff, you know. I mean, a lot of it is subjective, but but there, I think there's just certain things that are not subjective. They're they're what what uh, what um, pro provides guidance to our core, to our hearts, to the way we think, you know. And I'd rather keep an open mind to things and say, hey, if I were in that person's shoes, how would I feel if somebody was pulling me over at every opportunity if I'm in a, a Porsche with a with a, a white woman and then you get pulled over and have to explain yourself for the hundredth time what you're doing. You know, hey, we might as well be in Russia. Well, and each individual is made up of a variety of experiences that affect the lens that we look through life and how we make decisions and how we perceive things. And so, and that is unique to each person. And so there's... There's a lot of that that goes on and you know, trying to get in someone else's shoes. You never can be there entirely, no. but you can listen. But I, I, I think though, Amy, at the end of the day, um, that there are certain things when we talk about truth, if the score was 27 to 13, you can debate like how they got to that score, but you can't debate the score. That's what it was, right? So, right. That, that's, that's my thing. Just take, take a hard look at some of this stuff and go, okay, let's draw up these lines on either side where we don't allow people to vote. Just take it very simply, right? And so why do you want that? You want it because you want to have control over something in a life where we have control over very little. We could get outside and get hit with a comment or something. You know, we don't know. You walk across the street in London and look the wrong way, you could die instantly over there. That's why they have those signs on the street telling you to look, look right or look left. Um, so a lot of it is fear-based. I don't, I don't like it. I mean, I, I'm a child of the 60s. Um, 
I saw that stuff. I mean, I I watched uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, all pass, uh, Malcolm X. And, you know, we've always lived in turbulent times, but we're we're just in a place now. And again, musically, I think music helps. I think it helps a great deal. Calm things down a little bit. Let things. You know, it's like a wound that needs needs a little break. It doesn't mean that when people say um, that um, Nazis have infiltrated Ukraine, and we know it's not true, that we go, oh, yeah, that's just their way of thinking. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, it is their way of thinking, and they're wrong. And they're wrong because of this, this, and this, that, and that. It's the same thing over here. You know, you use your head to intellectualize what it is. And when people start to do that, then they go, well, God, maybe uh, Huey Long wasn't right. You know, <laughs> you don't have to name names, but we, we don't have to name names anymore. It's, it's not about that. It's like, it's about, um, uh, do, does something, do you have a core to, to reach into and, and make an, an informant opinion on something that makes sense? What if it were your family? How would you feel? I think that's the best place to start. You know, you're afraid of a book? Well, let's discuss it with your kid. You know, you're afraid of uh, this or that? Discuss it amongst each other. Don't yell at each other. Talk, like you said. That's the way things get. That's what we do when we write music. You think a band, read Keith Richards' uh, biography on, on with Brian Jones getting socked in the, the face or, or uh, Woody, you know, Keith throws him a right cross. <laughs> I mean, Keith. people do not belong. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But in a band, you, you, you have to make the best go of it to get along. And that requires listening to the other person sometimes, oftentimes, and they need to listen to you as well. Very well said. And we only have a couple of minutes here left. And I just wanted to find out from you what's next in 2022 do you, are you putting out a new album are you touring what's going on we have a pbs special that's going to be released in june uh, we did it at the ryman auditorium and uh that was a lot of fun we we um gosh uh, charlie star from blackberry smoke who uh, we've written a couple songs together i love this guy uh, oh he's he's amazing he love is charlie we we've only well we finally met because he was at the gig, but uh, um, oh, let me see. I actually have a list. I got a list of this list. I can remember anybody. Uh, Judge O'Herman was there from uh, Widespread Panic. We played dual keyboards on a couple of tunes. Eric Church joined us. Uh, Dixie Chick and Tommy Emmanuel, who's an amazing guitar player. Um, he and I did a solo uh, that's going to be on the extended version something um, that we were just laughing. We I'm still we, trying to figure out how he does some of those licks. <laughs> I don't know either, but we, we were looking at each other and we were playing, but when we, we listened to it, not together, but I said, when I heard our solo, Tommy, I was laughing. He said, I was too. And so it's one of those things. Jamie Johnson is, is incredible. Uh, uh, Betty Lavette, uh, Jeff Hanna, Marcus King, we got a great array of people that went then our background singers were starting with John Cowan um, from the Doobies. Uh, he and I are just dear friends. Uh, I've been playing with the Doobies the last seven years and now I'm playing with Little Feet again. Um, Amy Hell, uh, Connor Kennedy, not this kid since he's probably 18 years old. I think he's approaching 28 or 29. I don't know. He's, he's a great guy. And then um, uh, Nikki Bloom. Those were our background vocalists, so we were in high cotton. I'll just put it that way. And so that's a great show. Uh, next year, 2023, we are going to make an album. I'm not quite sure where, um, but there's a lot of material for it. So there's a really good energy and synergy taking place with Little Feet right now. Well, when you put out the next album, come back and talk to us for a few minutes about that that new album and everyone needs to check out the performance of the Ryman. It sounds like an all-star cast of characters. 
So uh, Charlie uh, Martin has mixed it. He's we have we have Amy did. Uh, we have a great team. Uh, Vector management, which is Ken Levitan, Brian Penix, uh, on and on. There's a great team with those people. Um, we're all swimming the same direction, and it is something we haven't done in a very long time. And uh, a lot of good things are happening because of that. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you, and um, enjoy your. Your week in Montana, it's a little cooler there than it is where we are right now. And, uh, uh, but uh, it was just really great getting to know you, and um, we wish you the best of luck. Thanks, thanks, Amy. Enjoy uh, Florida while you're down there. <laughs> yeah. And Memphis when you get home, and uh, gosh, do I have to eat barbecue again? <laughs> Come see us in Memphis. We we'll will. show you the studio. We will. I, 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 Memphis is a great town. All the bright lights in Memphis, the Commodore Hotel. Yeah, it's been a part of our language forever. Have a good one. All right, that's a wrap for this edition of Insights. Be sure to visit BillPayneCreative.com or like his page on Facebook to keep up with what he's doing out there in the world. We can't thank Bill enough for stopping by to chat today and all of you out there for tuning in. We aim to bring you the best music-based conversations, and being able to connect with the legendary Bill Payne is right in line with our mission. So, from all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.